Uh, in fact, you may be here this afternoon. It's the first time you've ever heard of Preacher. So I'm hoping that I might do all right. Uh, some of you have heard loads of sermons. I want to suggest this afternoon that we are going to listen to the greatest preacher ever. Uh, not me. Um, I want to suggest to you that Mark, the man who wrote this book, is a phenomenal preacher. I think we tend to imagine that Mark was kind of a storyteller, that he wrote down the life of Jesus, sort of a biographer, he wrote down the life story for, it, for us. Actually, Mark is not just writing a story, Mark is preaching, he's got a message he wants us to understand. But Mark isn't the great preacher that I think is the greatest of all. There's a greater preacher that I want us to listen to, because behind Mark stands God himself, God the Holy Spirit. God is the greatest preacher of all. God the Holy Spirit caused Mark, this man, to write this story down. So we might read it and go, oh, that's a bit obscure. You're writing a story about Jesus, okay? You're trying to tell everyone how great Jesus is, and there's a lot of material. Let's face it, Jesus did a lot of great things. He could fill up a lot of books with stuff. And Mark's picked out some of his miracles, you know, him raising the dead and healing the sick and some of these great miracles. And then suddenly, you get this random story which has got nothing to do with Jesus. Jesus isn't really even mentioned in this story, except at the start. I mean, what, what's Mark doing? And it's quite a big chunk in, in the whole kind of section of Mark. Why does Mark include this? Well, I want to try and convince you this afternoon that Mark includes this no, no, the Holy Spirit includes this because there's a message that he wants you to hear. And whether this is the first sermon you've ever listened to or whether this is the millionth sermon you've ever listened to, God the Holy Spirit has a message for us to hear. And he wants to speak to you this afternoon. He wants you to listen. And I particularly encourage you, perhaps if you're here, you don't know what you believe about God, you don't know what you believe about Jesus, will you listen? Listen and see. Perhaps even this afternoon, God might speak to you. How cool thing that would be. So let's ask this question then. Why? Why does Mark include this story, which seems so odd? I actually want to suggest that this is very important for Mark. As Mark writes his gospel, it is the story of the life of Jesus. But in this central section of Mark's gospel, Herod is like exhibit A. Imagine a courtroom. Mark says, I want to present to you Herod. I want you to look at Herod. He is my first exhibit to show you. And the reason I say that is because keep a finger in Mark 6. Just go over to Mark chapter 8. Oh, it's only one page. It's not that difficult to flick over. Uh, Mark chapter 8. And verse 14. I just want you to get why Mark thinks this is important, all right? Mark chapter 8, verse 14. It says this, the disciples had forgotten to bring bread. We're going to get to this in a few weeks, don't worry about that. Except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Verse 15, Be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. In other words, Mark says there are two, two exhibits I want to bring before you, two examples, two case studies I want to set before you as warnings. Herod and the Pharisees. You watch out for the yeast of, the Her of Herod and the Pharisees. So for Mark, this isn't just a random story. Mark is writing this to say, watch out. 
This guy Herod, that we're going to read about, we're going to think about, he's there to be a warning to us. It's funny that language of yeast, isn't it? The yeast of Herod. I, I don't know. My guess is most of you have never used. How many people reckon they've used yeast in their lives? Oh, very impressive. Very good. So, so yeast, basically, when I was a kid, my, um, my mum was given some friendship cake. Now, I bet not How many people have heard of friendship cake? Oh, this is good. This is the, I apologize if you invented it, but this to me is the most creepy thing I've ever come across in my life, right? That my mum was given a, a bit of cake, cake mixture, not real cake, just a bit of cake mixture. And what you had to do was, you, I, I didn't really follow all the details. I wasn't interested. You had to kind of add stuff to it as the week went on, kind of feed this cake. But it had yeast in it, so it just kept growing and growing. And at the end of the week, as far as I can remember, you, you took a third of it and made a cake. A third of it you kind of kept to grow more. And a third of it you gave to one of your really closest friends <laughs> who you really loved and wanted to share it with. And my mum thought this was wonderful. And it just kept growing and growing. And every single week I had to eat stupid friendship cake. Every week, what's for pudding? Friendship cake. Not again. I don't want any friends. And it just kept growing, and you didn't know where it had been. I got to the stage, I think, I'm just going to dribble in this and see how far my dribble will go. It gets passed on and on and on, and think, I've spread it all over the world. <laughs> uh, yeast. So, yeast, right? Now, the amazing thing was you never had to add ye- more yeast. It just, it was amazing. It just kept growing and growing. Now, that's, that's yeast. Now, what Jesus is saying is you watch out because this thing we're going to see in Herod, yeah, we may read it and go, well, I'm not like Herod. I'm not that bad. But the question as we hold Herod up as an exhibit is, yeah, but can you see any of it in your heart? Because I've been really challenged this week. I can see a lot of Herod in me. And I want to take that seriously. I want us to look at this together. I want us to try and understand it. For Mark, this is crucially important. Watch out. And let me summarize it like this. Herod stands as the great warning to us of a man who would not repent. That's the great warning. He would not repent. Now, repent's not a a very common word. Let me put it another way. He would not give up the life that he most wanted to live the life that God most wanted for him. He would not let go of what he wanted in order to live the way God wanted. His heart was hard. And here's the first big thing. I, I've got three big points this evening. Here's, here's the first big thing I want to show you. The gospel, uh, the message of Jesus, is a beautiful confrontation. Now that, that all might sound a bit weird. Forget the beautiful bit in a minute, right? I'll show you that in a minute. Not difficult to see if it's a confrontation. That's the easy bit. In this story, have a look at it with me. So King Herod, right? Jesus has been doing his stuff. He sent out his 12 disciples. They've been doing some stuff. Loads of miracles. Everyone's talking about it. Herod hears about it. Herod's freaked. Because it stirs a memory in Herod's mind. Everyone's going, ooh, who's this man Jesus? Perhaps he's Elijah. Perhaps he's one of the prophets. Perhaps he's someone really, really special. And Herod immediately has this very guilty conscience. And immediately something is stirred in him. Look what he says, verse 16. But when Herod heard this, 
He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. He's probably free. The man, this man, John. And then Mark tells us the story of what happened. And Herod, this man. Now, let's be careful with Herod. Because it's a bit confusing, Herod. Because when you see the name, there's like a whole pile of different Herods. They all belong to the same kind of Herod thing, clan, family is the word. And, uh, but they're not all the same. So you know Herod who appears at Christmas? Herod the Great. The one who tried to kill all the babies. He was Herod the Great. He had a whole pile of kids. This Herod is Herod Antipas, who is the son of Herod the Great. And he had a few other uh, sons. He had Archelaus and Aristobulus and various other people. And a bloke called Philip. <laughs> I don't know. You should have gone with that, shouldn't he? Philip. That's good. That's a solid name. It's a good name. I like that. But anyway, um, Herod was a man. This whole kind of Herod thing, they were Jewish and they were the kind of ruling family in, in Judaism. Under the Romans, they didn't have a lot of power, but they were sort of in charge. They were sort of the kings. And so Herod, this Herod, Herod Antipas, He's a king. He's got a throne. He's got a crown. He's got a bit of power. And therefore, he thinks, I will take whatever I want to make me happy. And he looks at his brother Philip and he thinks, he's got a really nice wife. I fancy her. And so we're told that he took uh, Philip's wife, who was called Herodias, just to add to the confusion. I mean, she was part of this family as well. It's all very dodgy, okay? So here he is living his life saying, I'll do whatever I want. I'm the king. I'll live my way. I'll do exactly... If I want something, I'll take it and it will make me happy. Now, there was a man called John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was a man sent by God to speak God's word. And have a look at verse, uh, verse 18. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So here comes John. He looks Herod in the eye and he says, you are doing wrong. God says what you've done is wrong. It's not lawful. It's against God. That took some bottle, don't you think? I mean, Herod's a powerful man. Herod's obviously got a Vicious man as well, you know, chops off people's heads and seems fairly okay with the whole capital punishment thing. And yet John looks him in the eye and he says, you're doing wrong. Now, can you feel right? Right there, that's repentance. That's the stark choice. It is either Herod's way or God's way. There is no middle way. There is no compromise. It's either Herod's or God's way. Now, this is repentance, okay? Repentance is not some airy-fairy, religious, blair-blair thing that we just kind of talk about. Repentance is a real thing. It involves real choices in the real world. It is a stark, sharp thing. Any gospel message that does not call for repentance is not the gospel. Okay, let me put it this way. Any gospel message that does not involve confrontation 
is not the true gospel. The true gospel, the true message of Jesus will always confront us. Because just like Herod, I like to think that I am in control of my life and I will take whatever makes me happy. And often there will be things that I do that God says is wrong. Now again, there it is. There's the confrontation. Um, imagine I, you invited me around to your house for dinner, which would be a lovely thing to do, and uh, gets the pudding and you say, there's a choice for pudding. There is apple crumble or there's raspberry pavlova. I would do what I always do in that situation and say, could I have a bit of both? And you would say, of course you can. And I'd say, great. Now imagine, I said, can I have a bit of both? And you went, no. It's either or. One or the other. You have to choose. Do you see how that, that introduces confrontation? See? Both and, no confrontation there. <laughs> this is fine. Everyone's relaxed, everyone's chilled. As soon as you say, no, no, there's a choice to be made, I'm like, <clears throat> confrontation. And you can feel it. You can feel the apple crumble and the pavlova kind of calling to you. And it stresses you out. That's repentance. Repentance is you can't have both. Repentance is you have to choose. You have to choose between the crumble and the pavlova. You can't have both. Yeah, we want it to be both and. We love it. We love it when life is, you can have this and this. Oh, lovely. No stress. But John the Baptist looks Herod in the eye and he says, you cannot have that woman and have God. It's pretty confrontational. But of course a doctor who wants to be non-confrontational is useless. So imagine you turn up, you know, you medical students, imagine you turn up on your first day and say, I just want to make one thing very clear, right? I don't like confrontation. I don't want to have to tell people any bad news. I just want to be able to be nice to people. I want to tell people something nice. They're going to say to you, you're on the wrong course. You're on the wrong course. Because a doctor has to confront. And so does the gospel. It will expose. It will confront. Because at my most basic level, I desire to live a life that is out of line with God. See, this is the whole thing we've been seeing in Mark's Gospel. Jesus came to bring a kingdom. Jesus came with this message that the kingdom of God has come. If Jesus simply came saying, look, I've got pavlova and apple crumble. You can have both. Have what you want. There's no confrontation. But Jesus came saying, I'm a king. I bring a kingdom. And you need to repent. Do you know, right from the very beginning of Mark's Gospel, you can check it out later, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, this was Jesus' message. The kingdom of God has come, repent and believe the good news. Not, the kingdom of God has come, do you want a bit? Do you see? Not, the kingdom of God has come, this will help your life and make it nicer. There's a confrontation involved. And Herod, right here, is confronted with another kingdom. Okay, I've made the confront. At this point, you're probably saying, I don't get it, there's nothing beautiful here. I mean, look at John the Baptist's sermon. Here he goes. 
Here's John the Baptist's sermon to Herod, right? It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And we might say, that's not a beautiful message. That's a harsh, cruel, judgmental message, isn't it? Well, it might be. But it might be very beautiful. You see, it all depends on the purpose of the confrontation. Are there not some confrontations in this world which are beautiful? Because they lead to someone being saved from great danger? Stupid example, right? Imagine you're in a block of flats. The block of flats is on fire. You're on the top floor and you're fast asleep. A fireman gets his thingy, ladder, climbs up, smashes the window, comes into your room and wakes you up and says, your house is on fire. And you roll over and say, it's a bit of confrontational, mate. Have you not got any good news? No, I don't want to hear that. It's so negative. It's also negative. Why are you saying this to me? I don't like it. You see, at that moment, that's a beautiful confrontation. And if you say, no, it's not. Don't be stupid. My house isn't on fire. Do you really want him to pack up his bags and go, oh, okay, fine. No, he's going to say, no, it is on fire. He'll confront you. In fact, if he's a good fireman, my guess is if you keep fighting him, he'll knock you out and carry you, out, carry you down his ladder. Because there is a beautiful confrontation if the confrontation has the aim of saving. Now, of course, if, if actually what happens is someone in a nearby block set your block on fire and then goes up their block and shouts across, Oi! Your house is on fire, mate! That's not a beautiful confrontation. But when John the Baptist goes to Herod and says it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, He's not saying that to say, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. He's saying it to say, we need to be saved. This is God's grace. When God sends John to this man Herod, you know, God could have just squished Herod and said, well, stuff you for disobeying me. You know my rules. You Stuff you, Herod. But instead, he sends John. And John the Baptist comes and he says, Herod, it's not lawful. Do you not understand? You're in massive danger, Herod. Please, Herod, won't you repent? That is the gospel. It's beautiful because it comes to people who are living their lives away from God and it doesn't say you're a miserable, nasty sinner and you're going to hell. It says you're in massive danger but God wants to save you. He wants to turn your life around. This is Herod's opportunity. This is God's grace. And the gospel will always be a beautiful confrontation. Don't be surprised if the stuff you read in the Bible or the things you hear at church sometimes confront stuff that you do. That's God confronting the wrong ways that we live. And he does it because he loves us. And he does it because he wants us to change. And he does it because he wants to save. That's why Jesus came. To save. The gospel is a beautiful confrontation, but here's the second thing I want you to see in the life of Herod. The gospel calls for a decision. What's Herod's response to John the Baptist? Does Herod hate him? If you, if you're, that was that was a question that could involve a little response if we wanted, but that's fine. Don't have to. I'm happy to go with the non-response thing. Uh, (laughs) 
Herod doesn't hate him. His wife does. She really hates him. She wants him dead. But look what we're told. Herod chucks him in prison. But look, verse 19, Herodias nursed a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Herod's got this weird thing going on. Can you picture it? John the Baptist is in prison because his wife was nagging him and said, that man is really annoying me. Put him in prison. Herod goes, okay, I'll put him in prison. But he sort of kind of likes him. So he goes, bring me John the Baptist. And here comes John the Baptist out of prison. And he says, John, preach me a sermon. And John says, not lawful for you to have your uh, brother's wife. It's against God. God commands you to repent. And Herod goes, thanks very much. I like you. Go back to prison. He goes back to prison. And then a couple of days later, he goes, get that John bloke again. I want another sermon. So John comes out of prison. And he goes, John, tell me another sermon. It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You're living against God. He's the king. You need to repent. You need to, Thanks, John. Go out to prison. And all the time, you get the sense that Herod isn't massively hostile to this message. It doesn't seem to make him angry. He's not like whipped up into a rage. He kind of quite likes it. He sort of knows it's true. But he won't make a decision. I wonder if you can see this. He doesn't decide. The first thing he sees is this indecision in John, in Herod. He listens and he quite likes it, but he won't make a decision. It's like he's caught in a trap and he's like, I want Herodias, I still want her, I still want her to be my wife, and I kind of like John. I'm going to have both Pavlova and Apple Crumble. I want them both. And John again and again is saying, You can't have both. Herod has taken his brother's wife. It's completely wrong. Herod doesn't decide. He wavers. He's indecisive. He's right there in the middle. He's caught in a trap. I wonder how often is that the case in our lives? Isn't it true that we can like church? I like church. I like going. I like listening. Sometimes on a good day. We quite like the words of Jesus. We're interested in it. We're drawn to it. But the reality is we also want this thing too. And I kind of want both. And I waver between them. And there's some days, don't you think there were some days when Herod listened to John and he thought, oh, John is right. I really must sort this Herodias thing out. I really need to put that right. Don't you think there were days when he felt like that? And perhaps he even went to see Herodias to go and sort it out, but then he saw Herodias and just was like, oh, I can't give that up. Can't feel the wrestle? He won't decide. He won't make the decision. And how often can we be like that? We're indecisive. We're caught right in the middle of this thing. There's a decision to be made. God says in Psalm 95, and it's repeated again and again in the Bible, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It's today. And yet, this is what we do. We think, oh, I really must deal with that one day. There's this area of my life, I know it's not right, I know I, know I need to get it sorted. There's this thing that I'm doing, there's this stuff that I love, there's this thing that's really important to me, oh, I really should, so I'm going to sort that one day. 
you know, when I'm old, when I'm middle-aged, you know, when I'm 39 and heading towards 40, it's at that point, you know, that's when you make serious decisions. It's not, by the way. (laughs) I can vouch for that. Uh, There's this indecision. For Herod, it was in the area of sex and relationships and women. And he never decided. And what I want you to see is that when we will not make a decision for ourselves, the decision is often taken out of our hands. When we don't decide, someone else will decide for us. Exactly what happens next in the story. Because look at the story in verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. So Herodias, this wife, she's been there all the time. She's been waiting, waiting for a moment, waiting for a moment. Suddenly, it's Herod's birthday. And this is the moment. And she is not indecisive. She doesn't faff around. She's not wavering backwards and forwards. She knows exactly what she's going to do. And she acts. And she has this birthday party. And here's what I want you to see. Is that the indecision led to this moment. This one moment in time when Herod does the most stupid thing he's ever done. He's having a party. He's got all his mates there. All kind of really rich, high officials, significant people. It's a party. No doubt they're enjoying themselves, having a laugh plenty of alcohol, on their way to being plastered, that kind of stuff at this, at this party. And then in comes Herodias' daughter. And she comes and she dances for these men. I don't think we're supposed to imagine a five-year-old doing a cute, cute little dance. I think we're supposed to imagine, not imagine, a pretty lewd, sordid, sexual, charged dance. And Herod is completely enticed by it. In that moment, it completely draws him in. He's dragged right into the trap. And then he says this most ridiculous thing at the end of verse 22. Ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. He would never have said that in the cold light of day. That's a crazy thing. It's in the heat of that moment, that moment of passion and emotion and pleasure and sexual desire, all of it culminates in the most stupid decision he's ever made. This group of men treat this young girl like a sex object. It's so, it's a disgusting scene. How did he get into this situation? Because he never made the decision. He's just left himself open because he never made the decision to repent and now he's out of control. He's not in control anymore. Herodias is in charge. She's wearing the trousers. She's making the decisions and he's lost all control and he makes the most stupid decision ever. He's lost all control. I wonder if you've ever experienced anything like that. A moment, a moment when everything is so powerful and you've made a decision that you regret or you feel like you've made a serious mistake in the heat of the moment. Something you'd never have done in the cold light of day, but in that moment, it's so powerful. Indecision left him wide open. Um, Linda was chatting to someone this week and um, 
she came across something on Facebook that she told me about. I, obviously, I don't spend much time on Facebook. My wife spends nearly all her life on Facebook. And, uh, <laughs> that was a joke. And uh, this just discovered a, um, a description of self-control. Okay, listen to this. I like this. Breakfast, kale smoothie with a banana. Kale. Kale. What is kale? Is kale green? Disgusting. Breakfast, kale smoothie with a banana. Lunch, I'm nervous now. Avocado toast and a quinoa salad. I don't even know what these things are. But they sound bad. Dinner. 57 bagel bites, 13 donuts, two buckets of fried chicken and one bottle of wine. The description of self-control is being you wake up in the morning and there's this kind of, I'm going to be really self-controlled today. This is it. The most healthy day of my entire life. Breakfast. Lunch. It's all gone by dinner time. It's, you know, self-control's run out. It's only, it only lasts so long. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that. You've got all these great intentions. You've got all these great kind of like resolutions, but there's no power. There's nothing there. And when it comes to it, you just cave in and give in. We're dragged away. We're enticed. And in a moment of madness, a moment of weakness, we make a decision which has devastating impact. I mean, this is the tragedy. I mean, how often have you heard someone, some guy who's had an affair, or a woman who's had an affair, saying it was just a moment of weakness. I'd never meant it. It just happened. It just happened. That's, that's the reality, isn't it? That's how sin works. I wonder if you know, where, where are those times when you're most vulnerable? Where are those places where you find it hardest? If we don't make the decision, then we leave ourselves wide open to devastating consequences. The decision to say, I want to live your way. I want to go your way. I'm going to let go of this thing. I want to go your way. If we're not prepared to say that, we leave ourselves in a position where we will make all sorts of choices. For Herod it was in this area of relationships and sex. And my guess is that for many of us, that is a huge area. The decisions that we make about the way that we use our bodies, the way that we invest our time, the people that we... All of this stuff, it's hugely important. And perhaps some of us, there are decisions. We know we're doing things that are wrong. We feel a guilty conscience about it, but we've never made the decision. I tell you, we have to decide. We have to repent. Because there will come moments when it will be too hard. And in those moments, you won't be able to resist. And even then, Herod had a chance, didn't he? Even then, Herod didn't have to kill John the Baptist. Verse 26. You know, this girl says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And it's just gruesome. Verse 26. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. He immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. What should, the king, what should Herod have said? He should have said the three hardest words for a human being to say. I was wrong. He shouldn't have kept his promise. He should have broken his promise. He should have said, I was wrong to make that promise. But he was weak. He was drawn along by the crowd. 
and he's completely out of control. And here's the tragedy of Herod. John the Baptist haunted him from that day on. He haunted him. I don't mean in a ghosty-ghosty way. I mean he haunted him. His conscience was constantly going back to John the Baptist. And you know, Herod met Jesus. This Herod met Jesus a couple of years later. It was when Jesus was about to be crucified. And Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. And Herod asked him loads of questions. He wanted, his, he wanted to hear from Jesus. You can almost imagine his guilty conscience. He wants to hear. He wants to hear. And do you know what, Herod, do you know what Jesus said to him? Nothing. Nothing. There was nothing more to say. Herod had made his choice. This is serious, okay? And I feel the seriousness of this. And I, 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 in some ways, I was really worried about preaching this stuff because this isn't a happy, happy message. But if you can understand, this is a beautiful... Con- if you are feeling like God is confronting you with something, can I say that? It might feel uncomfortable. It might not feel pleasant, but it is a beautiful thing. That God would show us where we're wrong and he'd call us to turn around and he'd say, I love you. It's not too late for you. You can turn. You can trust me. It is a beautiful confrontation. But there's a warning here. And just the very final thing, and we need to finish. Um, I just want to show you that the gospel is not derailed by rejection. You see, you might think this is all a bit of a disaster for John the Baptist. Shame. Here's this holy, righteous man who is lied against, plotted about, and the one man who could have saved him doesn't, and he ends up dead. Does it remind you of anyone else? Another holy, righteous man who was plotted and lied about, and the one man who could have saved him doesn't, and he ends up dead. John the Baptist is a forerunner of Jesus. Jesus is going to walk exactly this same path, and Jesus is going to go and die, and you know why he's going to die? Because that's how he saves you. He doesn't come with a mighty army to force you to obey him. He comes with a mighty love to die to save you. That's what makes Jesus so precious. That's what makes Jesus so good. That's what makes repentance so wonderful. Jesus comes to die on a cross. And as he dies, all the punishment that should be mine falls on him. He dies in my place. He dies to make it possible for me to repent. So here's, here's, how I, here's how I'd love you to respond or how I believe the right way for us to respond. It would be a disaster if anyone went out of this room going, oh, I must try harder. I must try harder. Yes, I really must stop doing that. That's naughty, naughty. I must stop. I must try harder. That's not repentance. Repentance is turning to Jesus. <laughs> repentance is about saying, I can't, I can't. I find this so hard, but Jesus, will you help me change? That's repentance. If there's an area of your life where you're really struggling, then you cry to him, you call to him, he died for you, he wants to save. Maybe even for the first time. For the first time, you've never, perhaps you haven't heard this before, or you've heard it, but this afternoon you can hear God calling you, you can hear him saying to you, turn to me. Let go. Let go of the life that you think is so wonderful and live a life that is truly wonderful.
in the kingdom that lasts forever. Repentance lies at the very heart of the gospel. It means letting go of the life that I think I want to live the life that God wants for me. Which is better and more joyful and more satisfying by far. So let's pray together. Uh, Let's pray and and we're going to sing a couple of songs and we're going to try and use this stuff to respond. And I realize this may well have chucked up some big, big issues this afternoon. And the sense I want to say to you, don't duck those. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Maybe that you want to talk to someone. It may be that you want to grab something. If, if you want to talk to me, I'm more than happy. Or talk to, come talk to Linda if you're not sure who to talk to. I'm sure you know other people. But let's be serious about it. Maybe for the first time this afternoon, you want to say to someone, look, I've got this thing I'd love you to help me with. I'd love you to talk to you about it. That would be real repentance. That's what, that's what Jesus is calling us to. Mark says, watch out for the yeast of Herod. Don't be like him who would not repent. Let's pray together, and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we... Well, I, I, I really, really feel the heaviness, the weightiness of what we've been talking about. When we look at this man, Herod, who would not repent, Father, we pray that we would hear this beautiful, loving confrontation and that we would be those who'd be willing to let go of just the stuff that I want from me and to live the way that you call me to. Father, please teach us what repentance really means. Teach us what it means to put all of our confidence and all of our trust in this man, Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen. We're going to um, sing together. Um, here's, here's what we're going to do. We're going to... Um, well, I, feel free to 